Sawbones is a show about medical history, and nothing the hosts say should be taken as medical advice or opinion. It's for fun. Can't you just have fun for an hour and not try to diagnose your mystery boil? We think you've earned it. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy a moment of distraction from that weird growth. You're worth it. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. I'm your co-host, Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Um, I feel very proud of myself, Sid, because this topic is a Justin original. It's that's, been a little while. That's true. Well, you were drawing on one of your past careers, past Yeah, past careers passions. is fine. Pa- past. No, past, passion is still there. The passion mm-hmm. is still is still present, The the but no one's paying me for it anymore so yes not a career any longer of uh, of journalism that's we're right speaking of well there are a lot of headlines that are concerning medical topics these days there there i mean there are commonly but yeah, but, but recently especially now with everything going on uh there's this virus <laughs> yeah i don't know if you've heard no i used to be a journalist on the mean streets out there you know mm-hmm. kind of a hard-nosed chase all the leads Covering Real. the the Marshall beat intrepid, as in Marshall University. Intrepid cub reporter on the Marshall University beat. Mm-hmm. That's where I cut my teeth. Right. But uh, I did a lot of different hard-hitting stuff. So what um, What is the hardest-hitting piece you would say you did? We don't need to get into specific sit. It's the all most... a blur. The newsman, <laughs> newsman call it the news blur. And it's just where you don't remember individual stories. You just know that they are all very intense uh-huh. and required a lot of work. But that's we're not here to talk about me, unfortunately. We're here to talk about media media literacy specifically as it re- re- relates to health news when you see health news how do you parse it how do you know a good one from a bad one you know mm-hmm. you're not a physician maybe i know you might be a physician but i am i know you're a physician yes i mean the listener may or may not be so uh i thought that'd be helpful well and uh you know as you may imagine the story of media literacy attempting to understand this is as old as media sure but the, the term, the concept really is like a, in practice as a study is not that old. I mean, it's only in about the last five decades or so that, that as much time has been devoted to really understanding all the ways that uh, we are shaped by the messages we see, all of the like ads and marketing, the way that plays into our psyche and then the influences that have, has on us. And and all of that is not particularly old. Um, And what gets included in that is our news and the way that we, you know, because a headline has to get you to want to click on it Mm -hmm. or, I guess, purchase it if you are seeing it in a newsstand. I guess. Yeah, I pick up the I um, guess that still happens on the rags or the papes, (laughs) as they're called. 
I I don't I have never I don't think I've ever had that happen to me in my life. What? I mean, we we got the paper for a while, but I don't think I've ever like seen them somewhere where I've been like, oh, look at that headline. Here's a nickel. I got to buy that. Well, I can certainly <laughs> say you've never used a nickel to buy a newspaper at Peepaw. I'm I'm pretty sure of that. Well, I mean, that's what I imagine when you're writing a headline that not only informs people, but also you're trying to. You got to grab persuade them. them to buy it. Yeah. Uh, extra, extra. Read all about it. Right. What I'm envisioning is somebody standing there like buying whatever, a pack of gum or I don't know. I guess at that point in time, everybody used to smoke. So cigarettes. So cigarettes. And while they're standing there waiting for their change, they're looking at the headlines and they're like, oh, hold on a second. I got to read about that. Yeah. Like I imagine that's what the idea was. Right. Yeah. OK. Well, now it's like clickbait. Now it's click on this. There's so many things you could click on. That's a loaded term, by the way, but it's fine. Oh, it is? Well, just amongst people who make stories, like there is a, it is a very fine line and, and I don't want to get ahead of us, but like, especially regarding headlines, it's a fine line between making something that misleads, which I think would be clickbait, sensationalism that is misleading, mm-hmm. sensationalism, clickbait, or something that is just a well-crafted headline that puts that piques the reader's interest, and you don't want to go afoul a, a of that. But not doing, not writing a headline that draws people in is bad headline writing. Mm. So it's a it's a it's a tricky tricky balance. See, I think this might be where part of the conflict is because, as we've talked about, we've joked about this on the show before. When it comes to like scientific writing, especially like in journals, the headlines. Uh, or titles are supposed to just be very accurately descriptive. Right. And in no way are we considering whether or not your attention will be grabbed by it. Right. That is just not part of. It's rare when you see one. We said, what was the one we saw recently? Uh, is that flu destroyer and teacher? Yes. Influenza and the, destroyer and teacher, which was a, a great a, evocative title, but, uh, but you don't often see ones like that. Yeah. I would say, um, Right now, well, I didn't mean to, let me say, I did not mean to offend anybody with that term. I did not, I was unaware of those connotations. For me, it was just something that makes you want to click on it. Yeah. Uh, But right now, when it comes to medical information and research, everything is changing very quickly. Now, my understanding is that even before we were in the midst of a pandemic that was obviously important to be constantly... Uh, made aware of changes and things Mm -hmm. uh, that a lot of publications will have a health reporter whose job it is to find the stories that might be relevant to the public at large Mm -hmm. and share those in a way that is digestible, Mm -hmm. easy to understand for the layperson. Is that the truth? Well, yes. Um, Again, not to get ahead of us, but um, that kind of specialized reporting as newsroom staffs are getting winnowed down uh, and, and people are getting laid off, um, a lot of times you'll see people who have that specialized expertise being replaced or let go and, and have their beat covered by like a general assignment reporter mm. who may not have the expertise or the connections that a specific health reporter would have. Would you say that's happening on the online space too? Um, I don't know. I don't, I'm not as, as plugged into that world. I know that, you know, I, I would guess generally, I know that definitely newspapers uh, are getting hit with that um, pretty hard. But, mm. you know, the bigger, the really big ones can still afford people. 
And it, and it's hard because in order to do that job, you have to know first of all what what is even relevant. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's lots of stuff out there that might sound interesting, but from a scientific perspective, you know, I would I may as a as a physician argue is you know, of little in of really little impact on all of the world, even though the the idea might be attention grabbing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what plays into this too is that as humans, we have a negativity bias. So if we see a headline that sounds like bad news, we are more likely to click on it or buy that mm-hmm. than if it's good news. Mm-hmm. Um, the the statistic I saw was 63% more likely. Mm. So as that applies to you know, coronavirus and COVID, if you see something that tells you things are getting worse or that things are very dire or whatever, you're much more likely to engage with that article than you are one that says things are fine. Mm-hmm. Um, which does not mean, I do not in any way mean that anybody would lie, but what it would might mean is that if two stories could be top of the fold, um, and you're going to report on both, but one of them is negative and the other one is positive. Maybe you want to put the negative one higher because it catches more attention. Perhaps, yeah. You know, or if you only have if you only have space for one health story, if you only get so much room for something. Yes. What story would you pick to tell? Yes. That's the kind of thing. There's rationale. I mean, there's sound logic behind that too. If something is going well, you don't necessarily need to know about it, right? Yes. No, that's very true. That's and that's very which true. I think would be inform why we click bad stuff, right? If mm-hmm. something's going well, I could just assume. I assume all things are going well, or at least fine enough to not need my attention. So when you see a negative story, you're like, "Well, this apparently does need my." Mm-hmm. Hold on, come on, anxiety, get in the get in the passenger seat. We've got a new, we got a hot lead. We have to check out and be worried about. But when it when it comes to COVID in particular, though, I think that there are some. Because there's, we're learning. We're watching science happen in real time, mm-hmm. right? Which is why I think people are have been, uh, well, one reason why people have been so reluctant to listen to some of the uh, recommendations of experts is that when you see things changing in real time and mm-hmm. us going back and saying, actually, no, that's not the case. We've done more research. We've seen more patients. And now this is the case. And this that we thought was true is not when you're seeing that happen in real time, you can begin to think that like, well, science is a mess. It doesn't work. Right. And this is the no, scientists. They're just as confused as the rest of us. Exactly. Yeah. But the truth is like, no, this is always the way it happens. You just usually don't see all this part. Like all this part happens in a lab and, you know, in studies and in the scientific community. And then by the time it's presented to you in the world to access, we've come to more answers. We're like we, We've arrived at conclusions. We're seeing a little science sausage get made right in front of us. It's it's table side science sausage. You're in the room where it happens. Mm -hmm. If you will. Yeah. Uh, The science room. The science room. (laughs) And so so there's obviously there's been a lot of like just straight up misinformation that's that's bled out there. I would say not in large publications, but like because it's the Internet, anybody can say anything and so we've already covered like those two urgent care doctors who said a lot of stuff that wasn't true and misled a lot of people we talked uh, briefly about plandemic um and there has been a lot of misunderstanding about what's real what's not how do we interpret it when some of these fake messages are removed 
from different platforms. This almost has like a worse uh, result where instead of people saying like, oh, YouTube took that down because it was fake. Mm -hmm. They think YouTube took it down because they don't want us to know the truth. Yeah, right. Uh, And we, uh, you know, when when researchers do surveys to look at like how susceptible are we to false messages? And in in one recent survey, this was just done specifically in regards to the pandemic and and people's um, kind of inability to tell truth from from lies when it comes to engaging with different, you know, media sources. In one study, on average, between 20 percent and 25 percent of respondents found fake claims to be true um, just upon reading headlines and trying to figure out what's true and what's not about a one in five, one in four people are going to just assume that it's true. Um, and, uh, one in five incorrectly believe fake claims specifically about treatments Mm. for COVID. So, so specifically in the treatment arena, we seem to be really failing to communicate messages about what is real and what is not, um, effectively. Yeah. It's hard to headlines are generally like, shorter is better so a lot of the nuance is is often left it's like mm-hmm. you know there's a, there's usually a couple some couching like may offer hope you know whatever but um yeah headlines i think don't leave a lot of room for specificity sometimes no and and it, it the flip side it was even worse uh they found that um with almost 60% of the public found uh, true information about treatments to be false. So even when we are getting the right information out there, over half of people in this survey at least weren't believing it. Mm. So we're really in a, uh, in a point, especially when it comes to like, how do we manage this disease where the, pe- the public is not getting the truth. Um, so I wanted to, to talk about a couple headlines specifically as a way of kind of dissecting, like, how could you as the consumer of this information judge, you know, what to do with it. Okay. Um, and to talk about two issues that I think are particularly, uh, gray right now in the minds of the public. Okay. So one title I found from Business Insider two days ago was research is coalescing around the idea that coronavirus antibodies may last just a few months. Yikes. I mean, that sounds scary to me. I don't like that. I want everybody to be. If, I mean, it seems to me that if you get it, you should be moving forever. Right. What? So what do you think that means then if coronavirus antibodies may last just a few months? Uh, that there's been research in people who have been previously infected that their antib- antibodies are are disappearing after a few months. And thus? They're capable of getting infected again. Right. So you, you as the reader, would see that title and think, ah, ah this is what bad. I, that's what I'm thinking as the me now, yes. currently hearing about this. Uh, now, I read this article. They cite two different studies in this article. Um which I already like for me as a scientist, when you see the title research is coalescing around and then there are two studies cited, that to me is already like, well, that is no. not a coalescence. Oh, no, that's two studies. Come on. Yeah. Um, the first is a study from China uh, that looked at 37 people who had definitely had COVID and had no symptoms. And what they found was that among these people, 
uh, they they not all of them had antibodies as they continued to test them a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks as they continued to test them further out. Many of them no longer had antibodies. OK. Um, there were some issues with this study because, well, one, it was looking back at, at like when symptoms and things started. Um, and two, it's only 37 people. Yeah, it's not very. Uh, and they're all asymptomatic is the other thing. So it was and these were not pre-symptomatic or posse symptomatic. These are people who had zero symptoms. Hmm. Uh, and again, only 37 of them. So that was one study that was done uh, like a month ago that they that they cite. And then the second is a more recent study, which you probably have heard about in other headlines um, for what it was really looking at. So. Uh, there was a big study that was done in Spain that came out this past week. And this was actually looking not so much at how long antibodies last. But what this study was trying to look at was how much of Spain has had this. Yeah. And the reason they were doing this study is because you've probably heard a lot about herd immunity. Mm-hmm. What they're trying to look at is like, well, if if we were to entertain the idea that we should achieve herd immunity, meaning that enough of us have had it and developed antibodies that we it can't get a foothold pretty much. Right. right. No, no big outbreak could happen. And everybody who hasn't had it is kind of protected by the herd. Uh, so that is what they were really looking at. So they look, they were just looking for the prevalence of COVID antibodies by sampling a ton of people to see how many had them. Not everybody, of course, that would, That'd be very hard to do. Uh, so they did this. They they found a randomized sample of a ton of people in Spain, and they checked them, and they found around 5% of people. Hmm. And, of course, it varied wildly from region to region in Spain, right. some areas having much higher, some areas having much lower. Um, but about 5% of Spain had had it, which uh, is, again, a helpful thing to know if you hear somebody say, well, we just need to reach herd immunity. Mm-hmm. Any of our estimates of herd immunity are that at least 60 to 70 percent, maybe higher of the population would need to have had it. And And that's nowhere near five. And now you look at how bad it was in Spain. Yes. Like we can't do whatever 10 times that. Millions more will die. It will take forever to achieve. And I think it's worth noting that we have not done that in history without a vaccine. Ever reach herd immunity without a vaccine. Right. So... Like as a population at large, mm-hmm. that's just not, I mean. Just not the way it works. No, no, no. That's just not, I mean, that is not, as a as a physician and as a humanist, I would not. Yeah, let's not, yeah. <laughs> argue for that. Um, and again, some other problems with this study, they, if you're looking for this question, I don't have a problem with the study for what they were looking for. They did a good job with that. But what they were look, but with this other issue about antibodies disappearing and what that could mean, um, this study just asked people to record their symptoms in terms of like, when do you think they ended? Mm-hmm. About what day did you stop having symptoms? And uh, all, what symptoms did you have? Like list them all. So they're asking people to remember all this mm. and remember exactly what day they felt a hundred percent better because that really matters when you're checking for antibodies you need to know how long it's been since they were all better okay because you won't start developing antibodies till after that well you will but it 
you're, you develop different kinds of antibodies. Okay. There's an IgM antibody that you develop right away. But what we're looking for in these studies is IgG, which are the antibodies you develop further down the line that provide you with that long lasting immunity. Yeah. So you've got, if it's been two days since you were sick, we don't want to necessarily include you in this data right now because we might miss antibodies that you're going to develop in a few weeks. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, uh, Anyway, what they found in this study when they did look at like who had documented case of COVID and then antibodies is that if you didn't have any symptoms, they did find that you were a little more likely to not, you know, develop antibodies. Okay. Uh, that is true. Um, the But the prevalence of antibodies, 14 days. Yeah. So how many people actually did have antibodies 14 days after their positive PCR was 90%. And what the authors say is that this is consistent with another study that found 90% of people who had tested positive for COVID developed antibodies two weeks after. And then another study where 99% of people in that study developed antibodies. Okay. So... What they say is for the few patients who do not develop antibodies against SARS-CoV-2, COVID, it is unknown whether they are susceptible to reinfection. I mean, that would be the question that I have is like how many people have gotten infected twice at this point that we know of? Uh, we have had those like weird anecdotal things that pop up in news stories. I feel where like I've seen a couple of those like woman has gotten COVID eight times. Well, but the- Sick of it. Yeah. And the, the problem is like- one, they're individual people. And uh, while a case study can be interesting and informative, it doesn't necessarily help us with like, you know, you what, should, what usually happens. You should know by this point as a supplement listener, the body will do some weird stuff. You can't. It's all probability. The other thing that it doesn't always tell us is, did they have a negative test in between? Because we know that this thing can drag on for a long time and people can test positive for way longer than we thought they would. They can continue to shed the virus much longer than we thought they would. So in some of these cases, they don't have like a positive, 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 negative, and then positive again down the road. Right. Um, and then also, if they did have a negative, was it truly negative? Yeah, because we don't, know. we don't know that all the tests. So anyway, um, so what does this really tell us about antibodies and immunity? I don't know. I'm gonna tell you right after we go to the billing department. Oh, let's go. The medicines, the medicines that for the mouth. We have just started rehearsing for the summer theater. That's right, summer starts in March around these parts, and that means we don't have much time at all in the evenings to make dinner. But we will not be just consuming Wendy's, uh, although there will be some Wendy's consumed. But we are going to have a little extra help with Factor, which delivers ready-to-eat, delicious meals right to your door. And not like junky stuff you get out of the freezer aisle, whatever. This is real, high-quality, chef-crafted stuff that in two minutes you're ready to eat it. I'm talking about some Southwestern-style turkey and mac. I think this week I'm going to be enjoying a shredded chicken taco bowl is, is, is part of my plan. Um, but they got like fancy stuff. Listen to this. Where are you going to get this? Truffle butter filet mignon. I mean, seriously? From 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 a, a box? 
pre-prepared. All I got at two minutes. I'm eating filet mignon. That sounds delicious. Yeah, it sounds delicious. And you can give these a try. And it's not just these meals. We're talking pancakes, smoothies. They got some great wellness shots that are surprisingly delicious. And the meals you just eat and eat. There's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup. Get as much as you need by choosing your meals every week. You're going to get exactly what you want. No surprises here. Uh, and the meals, I can say, are delicious. So what do you got to lose? Head on over to factormeals.com slash sawbones50 and use code sawbones50 to get 50% off. That's code sawbones50 at factormeals.com slash sawbones50 to get 50% off. Sydney, you know how you're always saying that you'd like to build a Justin McRoy fan site full of all your favorite quotes, clips, videos, and hunky pictures of beloved podcaster Justin McRoy? I don't remember. Well, there's that- no need to wait any longer, Sydney, because Squarespace is going to make it easier than you could possibly believe to make a website uh, all about your favorite hunky podcasting superstar. I don't think I was going Squarespace, to— Squarespace, what is it? It's a tool—think of it as— the palette, the palette of a web design artist. But you don't have to be a web design artist. You could just take stuff off the palette that is created by real people that know what they're really doing and put it from the palette onto the easel. The metaphor is broken down. Basically, you're going to be able to create great-looking websites that have fantastic customer support and help you unlock your creativity and do whatever you want to with your small business or podcaster obsession. You can sell products. You can uh, post your videos. You can share your stories about how Justin has shaped your life and is also a fantastic father. Folks, you got to stop waiting to make your Justin McElroy fan site. Go to squarespace.com sawbones for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your Justin McElroy fan site, use offer code sawbones to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So, Sydney, what does this really tell us about antibodies and immunity? Okay. Most people who have COVID do make antibodies. Okay. Good start. Loving that. <laughs> Would love to hear all, but most is fine. It seems like there are a few that don't, or at least we're not finding on our testing. Maybe our test was wrong. Maybe we, maybe they remembered wrong about when their last symptoms were, and maybe we needed to check them again at some point. Who knows? But there are going to be some people, it seems like, who maybe don't have some antibodies. Now, the other thing that they're not always looking for is the other kind of immunity you have, which is cell-mediated immunity. Your immune system has lots of different uh, tricks up its sleeve. Mm -hmm. Antibodies are not the only thing. Mm -hmm. You have other defense mechanisms and ways that you develop memory to an infection than just antibodies. Yes, antibodies are a great marker to look for, but we're not checking for that cell-mediated immunity aspect in any of these studies. Okay. So saying you don't have antibodies does not mean I can conclusively say you're not somewhat immune. I don't know that yet. Okay. The only way I could say whether or not you're immune is, you get is to give it to you and see if you get sick. Mm-hmm. Which or is ethical, which we won't do. But what we will do is observe over time, right? And see if people get sick again. I'm not going to give this to you, but maybe you know, <laughs> take a few chances out there, see what happens. Maybe nature will. Yeah. Uh, what we do know, what our best science tells us at this point, is that 
What we think will happen with COVID is similar to the other two coronaviruses that we've studied well. Uh, one is SARS and the other is MERS. SARS and MERS both gave us about two to three years of protection mm-hmm. after you would have it that you would be immune to it. Now then your, now then your immune system would uh, forget, so to speak, about it and you could get it again, which is kind of what we've always thought that you probably can get it again in your life. But not for a little while. Right. How long is that little while? We're not sure. And the idea that research is coalescing around a few months, I would say that's not that's a that's a huge stretch. No, we just don't know the answer yet. Um, if if the intention is to encourage people to continue to wear masks and to social distance and to be safe, great. But I I do think that there is an element of fear there. If you start to think, well, I could just get it again and again and again. Certain nihilism takes takes hold. Um, so, from a media literacy perspective, what if I'm a, a layman? How do I unearth stuff like that? What should I look for in a story like this? Uh, there was an article. So, I looked specifically for that, and I found an article that. Please do not take offense at this, but it was actually aimed at teenagers. Um, I, I read a lot about the this argument that we should be teaching media literacy in health classes in high school. Hmm. And indeed, it seems that perhaps some are um, not here locally, but other places <laughs> where they've already gotten. And I think that's actually a great idea mm-hmm. to walk us through this concept when we're young, before we start really engaging with a ton of news and making decisions based on that news. I think the idea that we should kind of understand, especially in the world with the internet, mm-hmm. what that looks like is is really smart. And actually from a health perspective, it's definitely applicable. Um, the first thing that uh, they recommend is, is this a study or a story? Hmm. This was a story that cited two studies, loosely, very loosely. One of the first things you would want to do is if they don't cite any studies, I wouldn't even, I'd want to go figure out, well, where'd you get this information? Right. <laughs> Uh, a study obviously has a lot more um, meat in it and is a lot more impactful from a scientific perspective than some doctors think. I've heard for a lot about a lot of people saying, yeah. Yes. So I would, if, if it is a story, find the studies. Read the studies yourselves. There's usually, uh, well, I should say always, there should be an abstract to the study. That's my bread and butter right there. That's what I like. I don't like to get down the weeds. I like that abstract. Which, just sum it up for me, uh, Poindexter. It does. It it has a, a part right away that says, usually in the abstract, that has like conclusions. You can usually read a lot of those for free too. Mm-hmm. You don't need the subscription or whatever to the service. <laughs> so so I would, I would want to look at the study first. And then once you look at the study, some other things you can ask yourself is, was this done in people? Because something that was done in animals is always at a preliminary stage and doesn't necessarily mean that humans will react the same way. And while it is furthering our body of scientific knowledge has not arrived at a conclusion for humans Um, who was in the study. If there were people, were they people that apply to whatever your particular concern is? Was it a diverse enough group of a sample? Hmm. you know, I mean, because in in some of these studies, it will just be, you know, all men or mm, mm-hmm. only white people or yeah. whatever. So, you know, was it a diverse sample size that, that helps you understand something about you, if mm-hmm. that's your concern? Um, and then you can get into, like, what kind of studies they are. If you see retrospective study, 
that's always a little less reliable just in the sense that we're 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 trusting people's memories of Mm. events to tell us or we're trusting documentation of old events to tell us what happened and what the truth is so that we can draw conclusions from it. Hmm. And I'm not saying that there is no place for retrospective studies, but if it is like earth changing, you know, groundbreaking, whatever paradigm shifting news, it's probably not based on a retrospective study. Fair. It's probably based on something that's prospective moving forward, looking forward, collecting data in real time. That's more reliable. Or like if we're talking about a drug or something, a randomized controlled clinical trial, right? Where you compared results. So like, look, you can easily look because most of the time it's in the title of the study, what Mm -hmm. kind of study it was. Um, And then think about like, where do reporters get these stories? Mm -hmm. Are they getting them from major medical journals? I mean, we name a lot of them on the show, like the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet or uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, something like that. Or is this like... And this is a little harder to parse, I think, for for the lay public if you're not used to looking for journals. But um, here's an easy one. Is it pre-publication? Has it actually been peer-reviewed and accepted to a journal? Or is it just, we did this study, we wrote it up, we haven't actually gotten it to a journal yet, but I want to send it to the media to get it published right away. Mm. Because before things undergo peer review... They haven't really been vetted by the scientific community. So something sexy will kind of slide it in there. I mean, that has happened. And that doesn't mean that the information's wrong. It may be absolutely accurate and and every bit as impactful as they think it is. But we don't know that yet because we haven't we haven't vetted it. And then, of course, like you can you can research it yourself. You can check into these things yourself. You can always ask a health professional if you're really not sure. Um but uh, but on the antibody, I wanted to address that first because I think a lot of people got scared from a lot of these headlines about how antibodies go away. I would still take every precaution, but I would not fear that there is no immunity from having had coronavirus and recovered from it. Um, and this should not impact in any way the vaccine that we're making. That's the other thing that people have said. So does this mean a vaccine is impossible? Right. No. No. Maybe you need a booster. Maybe we'll need to get a yearly one like the flu shot. Who knows? But no. Yeah. No. Um, The only other headline I wanted to briefly, and I'll try to be brief about this because it's more of a conversation. I saw this headline uh, from Bloomberg, uh, and this was actually like a couple weeks old. School children don't spread coronavirus. French study shows. Cool. We're done. That's it. Game over. Just give me some of that French schoolchild blood. I'll take two vials, please. I want to be extra immune. uh, Do you think I could get, probably on the deep web, right, I could get some French child blood? I don't want to discuss this any further. Why would you start this kind of, you know, this is how conspiracy theories develop. I'm just, you know, you're right. You're right. You're right. I need it for a different reason. Uh A winky. So... Uh, I this is this actually broke our rule. This is positive news, right? Yeah. School kids don't spread coronavirus. So we I can, mean, it's positive in the sense that, yeah, except it's obviously madness. I I think on one hand, this has to be. I think you have to deal with this information very carefully because, wow, everyone is confused right now about school. Um, 
doctors are divided on this. I mean, scientists, research. Well, I think everybody agrees that we can't just open up like we did prior pandemic and hope for the best. Yeah, well, but that's probably going to be probably going to be what we do. Actually, I do. Much. I don't think everybody agrees on that. I think there are some people who would be fine with us just opening up. As long as they're not the Secretary of Education, I'm fine. I have some bad news for you. <laughs> uh, but what this leads you to believe is like, well, if school kids don't spread it, and there have been other headlines about this, right? Like, kids are not as good at spreading coronavirus as adults are. Sorry, kids. Yeah. Leave this one to the grown-ups. <laughs> We've got it. And and so then we can just open up the schools and and it's French. So it's not it's not Americans. You know, we're off the wall. I don't know if you've read, but like <laughs> French children are they're like quadlingual. They're eating just only a broccoli. And, <laughs> no, and, they eat every vegetable. <laughs> oh, they eat every vegetable. Yeah. But their fa- their dessert is broccoli and they're amazing. They're all gymnasts. They've never had chicken nuggets. They've never had chicken pox. They're perfect children. They don't watch TV. No. <laughs> Um, They've never seen Chicken Run. <laughs> so in the article, first of all, they do jump right to the study. Uh, the scientists at the Pasteur Institute studied 1,340 people in this uh, one town in um, northeast Paris. Uh, crepe en valois Looks like creepy, but probably is not. No. Uh, and they had an outbreak in February and March. This is actually where the first cases of coronavirus came from in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, they included 510 students from six different primary schools. They found three probable cases uh, among the kids and it did not lead to any other infections. Mm-hmm. Looking back, and it was called, by the way, in the title of this, SARS-CoV-2 infection in primary schools in northern France, a retrospective cohort study in an area of high transmission. So, so I, as, with my new literacy, I know that uh, a retrospective study is not going to be as uh, useful as a prospective study. That is right. Yes. That doesn't mean it is useless, but but before you conclude that school kids cannot spread coronavirus, I would want to read further. One, this is a, a small area of northern France. It is retrospective. And I think one thing that is really important to know is that when they went, what they what they looked back and did is who had positive COVID tests from this time period. And then can we survey all of the kids who were in classes with them to mm. see if they also got infected hmm. by looking for antibodies? OK, so, so there's a lot we'll of check everybody for antibodies now and see who had it. The problem is, since they were school kids, you had to get their permission and like a parent to do it too, to agree to it. Um, and not everybody did. About half of the students participated. Mm. So if you're trying to see like if there's one kid, I'm going to say in a class of 30 because this is America. I'm betting in this lovely French village. Probably less, but probably yeah. like 12. But anyway, uh if you have one kid in a class of 30 and you're like, did did th- did this kid who we definitely know had COVID give it to any of these other 29 kids and only, you know, 12 of them agree to be tested and none of them got it. Mm-hmm. What do you say about the rest? I mean, it's a good sample, but, it's, you know, yeah, I mean, gaps there that where did they sit? Who did they play with? What right. did they, you know, what activities? I, I don't know. It gets a little tricky. Um, a lot of the staff did agree, though. A lot of the teachers, 90 percent of the teachers did agree to be tested. Um, so uh, 
and and again, this was all based on recollection recollection of events. They did the antibody testing to confirm. And then it is worth noting that after the first case in this part of France, two weeks later, the school shut down. So hmm. you don't have a long window there where they could have. Oh, uh, yeah. Spread it around. Yeah. Yeah. There were no vacation days. They did. They were quick to no holidays in there. But but there wasn't a huge window where they could have spread it. Um, and even though the researchers did feel very optimistic about these results, they were click, They were very quick to say in the study itself, um, these findings suggest that reopening of primary schools can be considered carefully with continuous monitoring of possible resurgence in infections and strategies to limit transmission, such as masks for older children, physical distancing, respiratory etiquette, and hand hygiene. So they're not saying kids don't get coronavirus. Right. It's just a little safer and if you take all these precautions. And and the truth is like we have seen some evidence that do kids get it less or are they just so many of them asymptomatic? Uh it's hard to say too because schools are one of the first things we shut down, right? Yeah, so there's less chance for spread. So like have fewer kids gotten coronavirus because kids are more like are, are less likely to get coronavirus or is it because I mean, I know at least in our family, as soon as the shutdown happened, our kids, well, they stopped leaving the house and they haven't left the house since. Yeah. I mean, they've ridden around in the car with us, but they don't get out of the car. They don't go in anywhere. So where would they? Where would they get it? Yeah. And I would say that's probably true of a lot of kids because you can't trust them to not like lick things or people. Yeah. That that sounds like an exaggeration if you don't have kids, but it's no. Pretty common present problem, just the, the licking. Uh, so the so the answer then, like if you read this, and there have been a lot of headlines I've seen like this that say like kids don't seem to get coronavirus or they don't seem to spread coronavirus. And I do think that there is there obviously is some difference between adults and kids yes. when it comes to the transmission, the, the ability to get and give coronavirus. There is a difference. How well defined that is right now? Well, it's not. We don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just there's too much we don't know to draw a broad conclusion that way. Um, we said we know that kids do seem to get less sick and they rarely die from COVID. Yes. I think that that is those are all fair things to say. But some do get sick. And unfortunately, s- some will die of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it disproportionately dispropor- affects children with underlying health conditions and non-white children. Mm have suffered more from coronavirus than white children. Well, yeah. So when we start talking about opening schools, I don't think simply saying school children don't transmit coronavirus is the end of the story. There's a million other factors. I right. mean, and, and, and also it's like you, we don't know how much these schools have barely been able to educate kids with the funding that they've been receiving. Like this stuff costs money. Like the, the, the changes that people are talking about in the, the, requirements and stuff like that can be expensive and like you're you're just foisting that on people who are already overburdened with work and then just trusting that they'll be able to to piece it together hey in addition to teaching these 30 kids can you try to keep them you know six feet apart at all times it's, it's, and don't let them lick things i mean it's <laughs> I, we have two and we can't stop them from licking things i and there's two of us <laughs> but i and the, the the other part of this are the teachers and the staff themselves yeah. like it's not just about so okay fine even if this were all true like the teachers can get sick yeah and we know that kids can't i mean it's not that it's impossible for them to transmit coronavirus maybe they're maybe they're less efficient but you stick them in the same room long enough for days on end 
a teacher could get uh, some teachers will get sick. I mean, yeah. that, these are inevitabilities. There's still going to be pick up and drop off of your kids at the very least. Uh, and, you know, if the if the adults are getting infected and getting sick, that is just as meaningful as the kids, you know, and you're exactly right. Like the parents coming into the school. I know there was just recently a case where like in a daycare uh, there were a lot of people infected by e- either from the child who was being brought, who was asymptomatic and sick or the parent who was coming and dropping their child off every day mm-hmm. who was sick yeah, and just hadn't gotten a result back yet. So didn't know they were positive. Um, and uh, the authors of this study kind of argued that like, well, adults are probably more likely to go get it out. Like, you know how teachers go hang out in bars every night? Yes. <laughs> That's where all these teachers are getting it. To deal with, to deal with having to care with your, for your miserable children. But we don't know. The truth is we don't know what happens when we put a bunch of children crowded into classrooms. Uh, We're going to tell some of them to wear masks. But again, as far as I can tell, the federal response to this is our plan is to let individual schools figure it out and have a plan. Our plan is that you should have a plan to plan to do things. (laughs) For a plan for coronavirus and then a plan for shutdown and a plan for reopening. Just create a plan for all that. If you could just make plans, that's our plan is that you'll have a plan. And again, what that speaks to is one, um, no coordinated response, no funding, no, no, uh, any kind of oversight to ensure that people are doing things right, that the CDC guidelines that have been put out, that the the recommendations from the AAP that have been put out, nobody's going to be checking on that stuff. No. No, because it's up to individual schools. Literally, I mean, on a county level, I think, I think that's what it's going to come down to here is the county will make recommendations, but each school can implement them mm-hmm. as they are able And again, what we come back to is the inequitable system that will have some schools that will have the resources to protect kids and staff and other schools that will absolutely not have the resources to do that. And those schools, those kids, those teachers, those people will suffer for that. And we will lose people because they didn't have the money to pay for the safety that the president is demanding. They provide magically. It's hard you know, it's it's I am certainly sympathetic to the people for whom the lack of schooling is catastrophic, the who have no other options for child care, who have no other options and like depend on that for uh, to be able to to feed their families like I, I'm I am not insensitive to it. I, but, and, and so it's like, oh, both of these options are bad. It's like, well, yes, this is why we, leadership is important. Why a complete deficit in leadership leads to these situations where the burden is being placed at the end of the, you know, at at the end of the stream. Like there's no leadership coming down. There's no plans in place. There's no, um, th- these plans are not being made. You know, if the, if the states and the, the nation really wanted to open up for schools, they should have stayed shut down all summer so we could, like, actually tamp down coronavirus cases enough to make it somewhat more reasonable to just throw the doors wide open. Well, that's that's exactly the point. Uh, why did we open bars and restaurants if we wanted to open schools? Yes. Why did we do that first? Why why was any of that a precedent? And I, I'm going to, man, I'm going to say this and we're going to get, somebody's going to get mad at me. 
why are we spending so much time and money and effort into making sure sports can happen when we haven't ensured that school can happen? I see a lot of, on many different levels, a lot of time and energy and tests being used to ensure that we can have sports. And I think sports are great. I played a bunch of them when I was a kid, and I think they're wonderful to participate in. But we need schools. Yeah, We can go a semester or even a year without sports and we'll be okay. We have to have schools. In fact, I'm going to make a pledge right now (laughs) that I will go a year. Boy. Without sports. There, I've said it. You can hold me accountable to it. Um, I, I I am not an anti... I love sports. I played softball and basketball and tennis and... Oh, listen. Don't let me... Don't let soccer. me get started on all the other sports <laughs> I know about. Also... I played all the sports. I sure, love sports. Yeah, well, I, I think about the I have every intention when there's not a pandemic of putting our children into whatever... If they want to. Assuming they want to. Pig's- Charlie can go back to Taekwondo eventually. Pigskin. But... But... I right now, why is that all of our priorities are out of whack? Um, and again, you're right. Like this puts people like single parents or dual worker households or essential worker households. Um, we know that disproportionately women are being forced out of the labor market right now. They're being put in a position where it's either someone watches the children or they get to have a job. And so you can't have both. Yes. I know that that's been reported on extensively for, for all genders, not just women, but disproportionately women are affected. Um, schooling. What about the school part? We know that uh, there was a study that showed that kids were falling behind in math as a result of this last semester that was largely virtual. And again, it's not all kids because disproportionately black children and Latinx children were falling behind in math in this one study. But in other studies, it was other subjects. Mm-hmm. Um falling behind and in some white children were not mm. so again this is this shutdown is disproportionately affecting both the virus itself and the you know outcome of no schooling is disproportionately affecting uh marginalized populations in this country and that but but the answer is not just so whether or not you can be safe and follow the guidelines open up mm-hmm because I'm seeing the same rhetoric being used about teachers and staff that was used about doctors. Well, you're essential. You're a hero. We trust you to go on the front lines and put your life at risk. That's what we've asked you to do. Do that for us. Give your life to educate these children if necessary. And that's crap. No, no. Well, what it should be is we have spent all of our time and money and effort in making this as safe as possible, we have new classrooms, we have more teachers, we have more staff to help watch kids, we have plexiglass dividers set up, we've got all this space and equipment, we've got tons of stuff to send home for the kids who can't come, here's ways for you to learn virtually, and here is a, a camp where we can send some of the kids to learn virtually while they're being watched by you know nannies and babysitters that we're hiring as a country to so that parents can go to work who have Mm -hmm. to work there are so many creative ways that we could have gone at this and we're not doing any of it unless the schools are being able to gather the funds and get the experts and figure it out for themselves i mean some will right like some will be able to do this but many many won't and they're all being held to the same standard, which is essentially open up or you get less. I know that this has been successfully done in other countries, but it's, it's important to remember 
that we're trying to compare ourselves to countries where one, this pandemic has, has been well managed, much better managed, where people aren't like we're not seeing infection rates skyrocket in these places like we are here. There's no comparison for America. Like we don't have a good. No, <laughs> there's I mean, not an analog where we can be like, well, they did it. Like, well, in America, you've been very bad at your all of your coronavirus, so you don't get to have school. Every you don't study, get any of it. every study starts with the same thing. Like, you could open schools following all these different guidelines in an area where the infection is under control. Well, in most of America, the infections are not under control. Here, they're not. So it doesn't apply to us from the jump that we can't. Right. I mean, the very first criteria we failed to meet. Right. So and, and these are also places where they put money into supporting families, supporting education, supporting health care for all, where these are countries that value that. And whether or not we value that as a society, it is not being shown through the action of our government. I feel like maybe do you have some closing media literacy tips? Sydney? I feel like <laughs> maybe at some point I listen, I feel like at some point you took my great topic that I had and maybe I, I, I hate to use the word perverted, but you've I feel like you have perverted my great idea for a show into um, an opportunity to sort of espouse your liberal (laughs) group think you should you should cut all that out because that's exactly the email we're gonna get later well no if i say it now you can't you can't send the email i know somebody's gonna tell us they're not gonna listen anymore because they don't want to hear my keep stop giving us politics just give us history that's the email what if you are let's let it actually say this uh, in closing though you don't have these kinds of insights if you're not a physician. What if you can't make heads or tails of it? Like, what, what's what do you do? I'm, I mean, ask someone who who can. See, I, I was going to say ignore it because here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, here's the thing. If you can't understand it, you probably can't control it. Does that make sense? Just just vote for people. That are going to do the right things and trust that they've got it under control. I I would say asking is one thing, but also right now there is lots of information that is easily accessible to the public being put out by uh, the NIH and the CDC and the World Health Organization. And I know that they get maligned from time to time, um, but the information there is accurate Mm -hmm. and I mean, the CDC has extensive guidelines on how to safely open schools. So, I mean, they're all there for everyone to read. If you want to know about the antibody testing, I mean, listen to Fauci. Listen to what Fauci says. He will tell you everything I just said about immunity. I've, I've heard it from him, which is. Another good option is there's lots of doctors on Twitter who are, you know, who will who are retweeting stuff like this. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen from some of your retweets, you know, medical people who are retweeting this and like contextualizing it when they do that. So, I, I mean, I would just I would make sure that if you I mean, these days you can't just say if somebody has a scientific background or, you know, that type of education yeah. that you can automatically trust what they say. No, Fair. no, that is not true. But I would definitely look for people who have some understanding of science to help you understand scientific topics, um, because it's like I mean, this is an area where I speak the language. There are plenty where I don't and I wouldn't. I wouldn't just read a headline and try to come up with my own ideas based on it if I didn't understand it. Yeah. You know, um, I would go 
if it was about engineering, I would go ask somebody who knows about engineering, an yeah. engineer, to explain it to me. Or ignore it. I'm just leaving it out there. Thanks so much for listening to our program. Uh, uh, we hope you've enjoyed yourself. Uh, we got the Max Fun Drive starting next week, so that'll be fun. Something to something to look forward to. Some some way to distinguish the, the days from each other, which is so cool. Um, thank you to the taxpayers for the use of their song "Medicines" as the intro and outro of our program. Um, I got a, I got a book. My brothers and dad and uh, we wrote. It's called "The Adventure Zone." It's based on our podcast. Uh, you can uh, the third graphic novel of that uh, comes out on Tuesday. Um, so if you want to pick that up, it's called "The Adventure Zone: Pedals to the Metal." Um, pick up the other two. Sydney read it. She liked it. She- I loved it. I thought it was excellent. Um, so I'm not biased. She's not biased. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Be sure to join us again next week for Sawbones. Until then, my name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. And as always, don't drill a hole in your head. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.